here on this side of things, so it's good to be here. Um, so we are thinking about this, as Dan said, from the context of being um, in the series on prayer-fueled living. Um, I'm going to read the passages from today. They are a collection from Matthew 5 and 7. I don't have all of the exact um, references, but feel free to follow along in Matthew 5 and 7 um, or just listen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother brother or sister, Raka, which is fool, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court and do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge people you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, so there's a lot in there, um, and I'll do it justice. I hope I'll do it justice. Um, And so we've already said this is part of um, a series on prayer-fueled living, and I just want to frame what I've got to say today um, within the context, the firm context of a relationship with God. Uh, Nothing that we look at in these passages really makes that much sense outside a relationship with God. Um, and I want to start from the outset by saying that we were designed for a relationship with God. Uh, as the Bible puts it much more eloquently, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And everything else springs from that relationship. 
Um, so sometimes I will be mentioning prayer explicitly um, and the part that it has to do in various things. And other times um, I might not make that that clear, but it, but it will be implicit. Um, so I just wanted to say that from the beginning. Um, and also I wanted to make it clear that I am a big um, believer in longer times of extended prayer, but actually I'm every bit as much today meaning when I talk about prayer, the, the small prayers, the prayers prayed while you're driving your kids to school in the car, the prayers prayed when you're in the middle of a situation you have no idea what to do, the prayers that you pray as you are going about the kind of humdrum daily reality of life. Um, it's all of the little communications both ways, the praying and the, and the listening as well, that builds the relationship and uh, that feed into what we go on to say. So new life. We are called into this living relationship with God. Um, John 15 has the beautiful image of the vine, and Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And there's something in the abiding of the living relationship of God that, um, that brings forth new life. And um, I want to draw a distinction today between um, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and what could it... Like, it's not your radical New Year's resolutions. Um, it's not God offering us a sort of a discipleship extra track for more brownie points and, you know, hardcore discipleship. But this is Jesus calling us deeper into relationship with him, and everything that says needs to be seen from the context of that. And I actually want to be bold today and suggest that outside of relationship with God's perhaps we should ignore the Sermon on the Mount because it, it sets the standard so high um, that, it is, that it's unachievable outside of God's. You know, one of the verses said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, and I can see trying to achieve the, the standard set in the Sermon on the Mount outside of relationship with God leading to one of two outcomes. Either we desperately spend our lives striving to try and reach this unachievable goal and get more and more miserable because we, we just fail to make ourselves perfect. But all the while, being desperately frustrated at our own inability to do that. Um, and that ends up being a sort of a salvation by works theology, thinking that somehow in something of ourselves, we can earn our way into God's heart. And um, that's just not the way Jesus teaches things. Um, or we'll have a good go at doing what the passage says and actually feel pretty good that we've got our lives in kind of good shape. Um, and, and I think that that will just lead us along the line of feeling that we actually don't really need God that much because we've got our lives in good order. We've embraced the various trappings of the new life without the inner regeneration that comes from a relationship with God's and I'd probably suggest that the latter is even more dangerous because if we are no longer even feeling the need for God, then we'll probably find ourselves moving further and further and further away from him. The first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount um, encompasses this really well. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's nothing in ourselves that we can do to earn this. It's just by the grace of Jesus that we enter in. And in something, there's something in recognizing our own weakness, our own complete poverty of spirit and inability to save ourselves that means that we can then embrace the, the glorious gift of life that is freely available to us in Jesus. 
Um, Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It is God who changes our hearts. Um, it's not us. I mean, there's, there needs to be a willingness from us, but then God's, God comes in to that willingness and does it. And the rest of our lives then present a canvas to the, for that to be painted out. And that can be a slow journey. Um, last week, um, Al was talking um, about, well, he was talking about lots of things within this, but he talked particularly about how Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to show that in and of itself, the law was insufficient to change us from the inside. And he looked at the phrases that come up time and time again. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And that, I think that was at least three times today in the passage. Um, Jesus was taking oral tradition, so things were passed down um, and spoken on. And um, he was showing how those often became corrupted versions of, of what the original law given to Moses was. Um, and then Jesus shows that even the law itself, you know, that's just the, that's just the beginning. Um, so today he talks to the he talks to us about the Mosaic law, do not murder, and he showed us that actually just just obeying that in itself that's not enough. He he takes us right, strips us back to the motives of our hearts, and challenges us right there. And he says, "You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment." Um, so Jesus is showing that, you know, abiding by the rules, do not murder. Well, that's not enough. Um, it's pretty clear, I think, usually, when a murder's taken place. Um, but actually, if, we, if we're thinking that God sees the thoughts of our hearts, it then gets a lot more black and, uh, a lot more gray, sorry, about how, you know, what's going on in our hearts towards people. Are we angry? Um, I think there's probably not very many of us or any of us at all who'd have a flawless record between guards with the bar set so high as do not be angry at your brother and sister. Um, and last week, as again, Al was talking about, I and mean, he mentioned the phrase, don't let our minds go somewhere that our bodies can't. He was talking that particularly um, with regard to adultery, but here it's to do with anger as well. There's a, there's a situation where he's saying, don't, Jesus is saying, don't let, your, don't let your minds play out situations that you actually don't want to do or that you're not going to do. I guess particularly it's those situations where you've had that conversation with someone and it's really wrangled you and then you spend that time afterwards thinking, oh, if I could do that conversation, I'd say it this way. I have done that a lot of times over the years. Or it's kind of sitting there thinking about how much someone's frustrated you and what you'd like to do. It's, it's there. Like Jesus says, no, don't do that. Um, keep your hearts and minds in check. God sees it all. It's not like we're doing much better. In this passage, we're not doing any better by just thinking it. Jesus says, don't even think about it. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, that first beatitude. Sometimes this is translated as blessed as those who know their need of God. I love that translation. Blessed are those who know their need of God. Blessed are those who know that they can't purify their own hearts to a standard that will please God. And so instead they fall on his mercy and cry out to him to change them. Really, that's all we can do. And the further we get into the Sermon on the Mount, the more that we realize that really none of this is possible through our own efforts. And the good news is that we were never intended to do this by our, 
by ourselves. We were never designed to live outside a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so we can keep asking God through the Holy Spirit to just change us. And his love will fill us and change us. And as you know, I've been reading um, accounts. I've actually been reading the um, biography of Reese Howells, a great intercessor from the early 1900s. And there are amazing stories of this where God... Um, highlights to him that there's somebody that he wants him to either pray for or bless practically. And he's like, I don't really have any particular, you know, they're not in any way meaningful for me. So God, if you want me to do that, you'll need to change my heart. And time and time again, these stories come where he's like, I started praying that God would change my heart. And there's just this love came pouring out of me for these people. I mean, it didn't come from me. It must have come from God. And um, I'm sure there'll be plenty amongst us who can, can testify of that same thing, just being filled with love that's not from themselves, but has come from God. So we've thought about how through relationship with God, he makes our hearts new. And this brings us change from the inside out. And this change, a change sorry, means letting go of various things. It means letting go of unforgiveness, means letting go of the right to our possessions, means letting go of the right to our own comfort sometimes. And the specific examples that Matthew draws on here are possessions. So he says, if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Or there's time. So if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Or there's retaliation as well, the right to retaliate. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your other cheek also. One of the commentaries puts this really beautifully. He says, Our possessions are not our own to hold and guard jealously. Instead, we must recognize that all we have comes from the Lord and is to be used in the best possible way to his glory. We hold all our possessions in trust from the Lord, and we are obliged to use them as Jesus did to help others. So I found most of the... uh, Sermon on the Mount and the large proportion of the Bible to be ridiculously countercultural a lot of the time. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us the most important virtue of everything else is to put on love. And um, love is the most important thing. It comes, it comes time and time and time again in the Bible. Um, and this is the thing that's going to set us apart as followers of Jesus. Um, Likewise, we live in a society that likes to assign blame and ensure that someone pays for mistakes and tragedies. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it's it's also commonplace to condemn our enemies and our evildoers. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And for all of us, this will be different. The line, our thresholds will be different on what this looks like. For some of us, this will be just difficult, full stop from the outset. And for others of us, the concept of loving someone who's stuck in cycles of addiction or petty crime will be a lot more palatable than the idea of loving the pedophile, the murderer, the terrorist. But the command from the Bible is alarmingly simple. It just says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And thinking about this, honestly, probably not that many of us would call, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't think I would call very many people, if anyone, my enemies. I might be wrong, but I'm guessing that probably a few people here might be in the same boat. Um, But I wanted to show you, I wanted to just um, 
there's a video of a someone, a Dutch Christian called Corrie Tenboom. Um, she and her family, she was in a Dutch family who uh, um, were in the, they were in Holland during the Nazi Holocaust where Hitler was trying to eradicate the Jewish population. And at this Christian family sheltered and tried to keep safe and get to places of safety, as many Jews as they possibly could. And for this, she and her family then went to a concentration camp for many years. And I believe she lost her sister and I think possibly her mother there. But she speaks about forgiveness in a way that few could, I think. So can you just play that? It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel officers, guards, in the concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world. Also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom wants him here forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. Do you know that Jesus has said that? When you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. I, I knew, oh, I'm not ready for Jesus coming because I have no forgiveness for my sins. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then... I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. I've watched that so many times in preparing for this, and there's just every time I watch it, I find it so challenging. She expresses it so beautifully that there's nothing in her that can make that natural change to to forgive him, to choose to forgive this man, or to choose to love him. And it's only through the painful and yet beautiful process of going to the Word of God, taking resources from God's 
that are not of her, but from God, and um, letting it change her. The other thing about love that I want to mention is that it is totally different from like. We can offer come a cropper here, I think, because we're waiting to feel kind or warm or liking feelings towards people before acting. But actually, the Bible doesn't tell us that we're needing to like our enemies. This is never required of us, only that we love. And the thing is, is that love is entirely a choice, an act of will. And it's often when we start to choose to act with love um, that we start finding that our hearts are changing anyway. The great C.S. Lewis has wise words on this subject. He said, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you'll presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. And if you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian man has charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. And the Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have imagined liking at the beginning. So God is in control. And in Romans, Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. So here there's a need not just to let go of our time and our comforts and our right to retaliation, but there's a need to let go of those things and then trust in God that he has the ability to judge and that it's his to do so. I find myself so grateful on so many occasions that it's not up to me to judge, and that I can just leave that to God. Again, I want to position this within what we talked about in prayer. Um, Actually, this is a position, this position of trust is really hard to just get to, just to choose to get to, without actually the living day-to-day communication with God. And also, I find that the 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 daily communication with God shows us what kind of position we should be taking in this. I think sometimes God says, you need to stand and you need to fight this one out in prayer. And and that position is one of sort of, I guess, warfare almost. But you've heard from God what you need to do and you need to to fight this one out. And sometimes God says, look, I've got this battle. You need to be still. And from that place of stillness, you you need to know that I've got this. And sometimes... You know, God tells you to go and do something practical, and there's a practical outworking that you need to do. We can't, there's no formula in the Bible for that. It is just relationship with God. We need to come to Him and we need to ask Him what we do in these situations. And it's that kind of guidance that we get through prayer and reconnecting with our Father who loves us and who will never leave us or forsake us. And as we're looking to Jesus, as the ultimate example in everything, we see that when he was accused and put on trial before his crucifixion, he remained silent. He didn't take this right, you know, he didn't retaliate. He didn't even justify himself to these 
wrong accusations that were being thrown at him. It says in Isaiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So if Jesus, the sinless man, he was fully God's and fully man, didn't try and seek retribution, didn't try and justify himself, how much more should we do the same? One commentator writes, when Jesus died for us on the cross, he did not do it to defend our rights or his. It was grace that took him there. And now as his children, we are called to do the same called to the same life of self-sacrifice and Christ-like service. And thinking more about rights, I was drawn to the um, well-known passage in Philippians 2, and it says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if Jesus, who was God incarnate, could manage to humble himself and not need to have his position as fully God recognized, but was content to take on the nature of a servant, how much more do we need to be doing the same? So as we progress in the passage, Matthew 7 takes us and it says do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way as you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you and then he takes us on from here and talks about hypocrisy not going to great pains to paint uh, to point out that speck in your brother's eye whilst being gloriously unaware of the large plank in your own and jesus here is bringing us he's highlighting to us the tendency of overlooking, uh, sorry, of of seeing faults in those around us whilst blithely overlooking our own. Um, Certainly I see that in myself sometimes. I will leave it to you guys to judge if you do the same. Um, This can be in our thoughts, it can be our words. Um, It doesn't really matter because as we read earlier with regards to murder and anger, it's it's kind of all the same in God's eyes. Um, I was thinking about this on a day-to-day level, and I was thinking, you know, there's those situations, aren't there, where we have one rule for ourselves and another rule for everyone else. Don't talk to Al about that, because I am terrible at doing that. He'll say, you know, the number of discussions we've had where I've said, no, it's fine, I've got double standards for me, and he just throws up his hands in exasperation. Um, But it's also, I guess, you know, when we're driving, when I'm driving, I think this is when I do it probably the most, where I'm furious at the impatient and erratic behavior of another motorist, and I'm really cross at them. And then at times when I am slightly late for taking my children to school, my behavior is, I'm sure, certainly impatient, maybe erratic. Let's hope not erratic. But I'm very good at, you know, justifying my own behavior whilst being really cross at other people for theirs. And so I'm sure we all do it in some way or other. Um, Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. And we need to ask God that he would open our eyes to, um, to this in our own lives. Because it can creep in unnoticed. And we don't call Satan the father of lies for no reason. He's really good at distorting our view of things so that we are not seeing an accurate picture. So there's a really 
you know, strong danger in seeing ourselves through rose-tinted specks and seeing other people critically under a microscope. But when I was preparing this, I actually felt God um, nudged me, sorry, that it's, it's not particularly covered by the passage, but the enemy can also ensnare us the other way around. We can all too readily condemn ourselves and see what we're doing um, as, you know, we can condemn that whilst seeing other people in their lives through an Instagram filter. Um, I read the phrase in the early days of Florence's life, comparison is the thief of joy. And this has been a, a phrase that I've held on to tight ever since because, as you might imagine, having a baby and, and now a toddler who is at a very different stage in terms of physical development to their peers um, can lead to comparison. And actually, it's so true. It is the thief of joy. Um, I know this. I know I do this as a parent. You know, I see people I admire, friends, or people further afield, um, and I, I see them living their lives around me or on social media, and, um, or at least I see the bits that I get to see, bits that they want to share, and I can feel in, inadequate and insignificant. And I think this is as much of a sin as having the speck and log the other way around, because it breeds discontentment with our lives the way God's given them. And I'm not saying we shouldn't admire or even aspire to the examples of those around us. But I am saying that when we compare or judge, usually based on fictitious criteria, then we're straying onto dangerous ground. So obviously, with all this talk of living rightly with others, hopefully there'll be no disagreements to talk of. But knowing that we're living in the real world, Jesus also helpfully tells us to hand, how to handle disagreements. Here he gives us really practical advice. He tells us to admit our sin. He tells us to correct the injustice. And he tells us to settle matters quickly. Don't drag matters out, but do whatever you can, like the um, Romans passage we read earlier, do whatever you can to um, bring peace and resolve situations as quickly as you can. Sin, sin's got consequences, and God desires that we should avoid these consequences. And this is why, he, I think this is one of the reasons he tells us to settle matters quickly. The longer we drag things on, the more hurt that's going to be caused. Um, how wonderful if we can manage to settle disputes before we have to have mediation from other people. In the passage we already mentioned, it says, turn the other cheek. But there's a lot within scriptures about taking offense as well. Proverbs 18:19 said, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Whereas in Psalm 133, it says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. Or it says, brothers dwell together in unity. We do quote that one of the kids sometimes. Um, and we will most likely all have masses of opportunities throughout any given week to take offense at people, whether it's rudeness, insensitivity, something else entirely. I do remember once saying to someone, no, no, I'm really, really quite hard to offend. And then they said something really rude, and I was really quite offended, and I thought, that'll teach me for saying that. But um, let's be those who turn the other cheek. Let's be those who are quick to forgive, slow to become offended. And the title I was given for this was Blessed are Those Who Make Peace, Building Community and Doing Relationships Well. And I want to just say this is a journey I'm on. I'm somewhere on the journey. I'm further on than I was, but I have got so much further to go. 
But my life is a, a testament to God's patience and graciousness in leading me day by day, often hour by hour, minute by minute with young children, um, into doing relationships in a way that God's intended. Quite a few years ago now, Al and I did um, pre-marriage prep with Keith and Eileen and a few other couples, James and Bex included. And I can remember one session where we were talking about communication And I mentioned something in passing about the times where Al was like, are you all right? And I'd say, yeah, I'm fine. And I'd say it, I'd say the words, I'm fine, and everything in my tone and my body language would indicate really clearly that I wasn't fine. And then it was up to Al to get busy with trying to work out what earth was wrong with me or usually how he'd upset me in some way. Um, And I can remember the faces of everyone else in the room when they went, Caroline, that is not an okay way to communicate. You do know that, don't you? And I was absolutely flabbergasted. You know, I'd come, I'd I'd just finished, I was just finishing at that time university. I'd come out of an all-girls school, which is not a place that's renowned for excellent communication, I have to say. And um, I just thought everybody did that. Apparently not. And I took the challenge. And I can honestly say I... I don't do that. I, I, I possibly haven't even done that since because I just, I just had never questioned it before. But let's take time to, um, let's take time to communicate well with people. Let's time to listen to those around us, and let's be slow to be angry and slow to take offence. When we are bothered by things that other people say, let's take time to sit down with them and explain why we're bothered by it rather than being really upset that they haven't changed their behavior when actually we've not even communicated that to them. I can remember once being passed some secondhand feedback about an area that I just frankly wasn't serving very well and in all honesty I wasn't serving very well because I'd not even noticed the need and I found it quite upsetting that I was passed that feedback secondhand rather than somebody just coming up to me and saying do you think you could help with this? But conversely, I remember one Sunday, quite a few years ago now, um, where Vicky Dunn was leading Tiny Tots. Vicky and Chris were part of our church for many years. Um, and I, to my shame, talked all the way through, as a, as a parent helper, talked all the way through the little talk she gave on the Bible. And Vicky came up to me afterwards, and she really graciously and gently, but firmly, said to me that she felt really bothered if people talked over that, because it was something that she felt was important and that talking over it didn't really show it very much value. And I was absolutely mortified. Um, But I was so grateful that she'd come and talk to me about it um, because she'd short-circuited any further problems. Um, I never did it again because I'd been alerted to it and, you know, I agreed. I'd just just been thoughtless before. Um, And she didn't need to sit there stewing that I was being really insensitive because she'd come and talk to me about it. And it also gave me the opportunity to apologize to her, which meant that there was just complete resolution. Oh, that we should all aspire to communicate so well in our daily life. So as we start to do relationships God's way, it brings peace. And as we do disagreements according to the principles that God shows us, it it brings peace too. And as we let go of our own rights and surrender to the maker of heaven and earth, his peace invades. But this is the, you know, the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We've thought about this from the angle of pursuing peace through our lives. Um, But I also want to think about it briefly 
through the angle that we've not yet thought about, which is choosing to act in a way... Um, sorry, ignore me there. Um, is, is reconciling those around us with their Heavenly Father, bringing peace through introducing people to God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, although God was making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Christ's ambassadors, we have peace with God. Let's just pause there just for a moment and let that sink in. We, we have peace with God. The one who made the world and breathed everything into being, that God, we, we have peace with him. And so it's our joy and it's our privilege to bring that peace to those around us. Those who don't know that peace of God is actually ready and available for them as a free gift. Colossians 1 says, The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now, now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in this faith, established and firm, and do not move from the, whole, uh, the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you've heard and that, you have be, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I was going to read just one verse there, but it's just so good news. That is just, it's, we've got peace with Christ. And so perhaps being peacemakers lead, needs a little bit more than just living in a way that actively promotes peace. But perhaps there's something about sharing the good news that we can have peace with God through Christ. And so that just, this leads us back to where we started. It's all about relationship with Jesus and it's all about the new life that springs from that relationship. This all starts and ends with the fact that we were made for a relationship with God. And all of this makes sense from within that context and doesn't really make sense without that.